welcome to Inside Track. In this episode, I chat with Discovery Bank CEO Hilton Kauner and try to learn more about his vision of behavioral-based banking. What is it? How did they come up with this vision? And how are they incubating an internal culture of innovation and collaboration and autonomy to make this vision actually realize? As always, a huge thanks to Huawei for sponsoring the Future of Finance series and this particular episode. Without them, none of this would obviously happen. Enjoy. A very warm welcome. Colin, great to be with you. Thank you very much for doing this. I know you're incredibly busy. I believe it was uh, results not too long back. And um, regardless, from what I've seen, you're a bank, which is what, three, four years in the making. And I can't believe that uh, you've got huge amounts of time on your hands. We're going we're gonna to dig in, obviously, on this call to try to understand what it is that Discovery is doing differently, why you chose to actually set up a bank, why you think it's differentiated from the other incumbents in the market, whether you think there's space, what you're actually trying to achieve, and how you're trying to get that innovative culture into Discovery Bank in the same way that I think it's globally recognized. Um, You've created an awesome innovative culture across the rest of the group, come up with some incredible schemes like Vitality. But before we do all that, could you just share a little bit of your background? I think it's important for context to understand where you're coming from. Yeah, sure, Colin. I started with Discovery 25 years ago. It was soon after completing my actuarial science degree. So I'm an actuary by training, uh, but I've spent the, the sort of the last 25 years of my career um, really sort of in the front line from a corporate perspective, uh, being involved in the development of uh, Uh, Discovery Health initially, but then through the product development, marketing, and ultimately sort of uh, banking space, every new business launch that we've uh, we've done at Discovery um, since then, which included Vitality, uh, Discovery Life, Discovery Invest, Discovery Insure, and now Discovery Bank, I've uh, I've really been involved in. So I really sort of uh, loved my time uh, over uh, over the course of Discovery and had an opportunity to really, I suppose, uh, bring together actuarial science on one hand, and the sort of the, the creativity and the, the customer facing elements of the, of the role on the, on the other. Um, and it's really been a, it's been a fantastic journey. So we'll, we'll come back and I want to uh, pick up on this, this point, which I don't know if everyone picked up on that. You don't really come from a banking experience. So we'll come back to that later on in, in the call as to how that decision process was made. Every other bank has a CEO that comes from a banking experience, perhaps with the exception maybe of Capitec. But and so anyway, I want to come back to that. But first of all, what was Discovery Bank's vision? The, the vision for Discovery Bank is very much aligned with, with our purpose at Discovery. Discovery as an organization, you know, some of the, the viewers may, may be familiar with, is born out of a, a fairly simple but profound purpose of making people healthier. And you know, if I go back 20, 25 years, the, the sort of the health insurance environment was one where it was focused entirely on paying for healthcare when people got sick. And, and we sort of flipped that on its head, largely as a result of, of I guess, an appreciation that, that if you could make people healthier, you could bring down the cost of providing health insurance, you could bring down the cost of life insurance, and you could run a better business in, in terms of profitability of the insurer and better persistency. So the interests of the client and the insurer were completely aligned. And that sort of gave us it gave us an uh, entree into the world of shared value, where, which is a, a concept that was, then, that was then, I suppose, really concretized by Professor Michael Porter. And, and I think is seen today from a business perspective, a model that really does align the interests of the customer, 
the business and broader society. And our entire approach in every sort of vertical of our business is premised on a very similar, a very similar mindset. So, so Discovery Bank was really built then on the back of a very similar vision. Could we make our customers by really, I guess, sort of focusing on the behaviors that drive better financial outcomes, could we get them through incentives and nudges and information and knowledge to really act in a way that's better for themselves in the long term financially and better for us as a, as a bank? So, so in other words, lower default rates, better persistency, better sort of uh, transaction uh, frequency and, and, and utility, but in a way that that's good for, good for both parties. Um, and I think, you know, one of the, the impediments to, to doing that over the years was the fact that banks traditionally needed real branch infrastructures. They needed sort of bricks and mortar. And a lot of, you know, when you're moving cash around in particular, you know, the, the role of, of a bricks and mortar branch environment is absolutely crucial. But what we, what we started to really observe was that banking was going digital. And when the technology sort of got to a point where we felt, you know, we can actually, we can combine the, the behavioral knowledge that we built up, the data that we built up over, over decades on our client base, which was incredibly rich, the sort of the experience that we built up on our discovery card base, which was probably the most successful standalone credit card in the country um, at, uh, at the time. And then real digital technology, if we could bring it all together, we thought, you know, this is an opportunity to build a, a really purpose-driven disruptive bank. And that's that sort of in a nutshell is, uh, is, is what got us to that point. Let's uh, touch on this purpose thing, right? Because a lot of people may not believe some of the items you every, every company has a vision every company goes out and says we've got a purpose and we've got values 99.99 percent of companies actually in my honest opinion are putting lipstick on a pig they're they're using their marketing team to invent something maybe they want to do it but it never quite actually you know lands now if you go back in what was it 94 somewhere around that period when uh, adrian gore is coming up with this idea about uh, discovery and you were there or thereabouts at the start, how intrinsic was the purpose about making people or helping people live longer and, and more healthily to everything that happened with Discovery, whether it's the, the medical, whether it's on the life insurance, whether it's on the driving insurance that's coming through? Because a lot of people are probably going to think that um, the profit motive is what's driving Discovery. And maybe that's the case. I don't want to put words in your mouth. How, talk me back about how important that purpose is. The purpose is the foundation of the organization. Uh, quite simply, if something doesn't align with the purpose, we won't do it. And uh, it may be the most profitable potential uh, business segment. If it's not aligned to our purpose and we can't see a way to, to aligning it, we simply won't, we wouldn't do it. I think the maybe a few proof points in a sense are if you had to talk to our staff, often you speak to, to sort of people across the organization and some may know the, the sort of the vision of the organization, as you say. Uh, but I'd argue that, that ordinarily most don't because they, you know, the, the visions are often crafted in boardrooms and they don't really sort of manifest outside of, outside of that much. And they often are long-winded statements around return on capital and things like that. Ours is actually very simple. Making people healthier is what we're about. And the evidence, I would argue, is if you had to stop any employee, you know, if you take the 11,000 employees that we have at One Discovery Place, not, not all present today, but if you ask any of them, you stop them. And we often... You know, we often discuss this and we sometimes do it. Ask any of them, what is the purpose of discovery? I would argue that 100% will tell you we're here to make people healthier. You know, they may not exactly know what that translates into actuarially and how their role fits into that precisely, but they know that as an organization, 
That is what we're here to do. And it is central to, to everything at a product level. It drives who we are. So if you think about vitality, which today underpins every single thing that we do, vitality was born purely out of a desire to create incentives that drive the right behaviors to make people healthier. Simple as that. It is, you know, it is all about positive incentives that are designed to, to drive those kinds of behavioral outcomes. And we know explicitly and implicitly that if we get it right, it will have a profound impact on our clients. There's nothing more important to people than their health. And you can see in a COVID environment, that has been proven. You know, I think that when we started, often health was, or wellness was, was fluffy. You know, you go back, you said 94, that was the era of aerobics and sort of pretty light health. We saw a very different vision around, around preventive care, around actually managing people's care, making them truly healthier. And in so doing, reducing the risk of the, the risk pool, it was, it was sort of a combined actuarial approach on one hand, that if you can do it, you can have a massive, massive differentiator and long-term advantage in, in the products that you offer. But at a client level, we also knew that we would change people's lives. And I think that's really what's fueled, that's what's fueled the organization. And hopefully our clients see it in, in, in sort of everything that we do. So when it came to vaccinations, we didn't hesitate. You know, we've invested hundreds of millions in building vaccination centers. Across uh, across the country, and so it is core to it is core to who we are. Okay, so I get that. But when you started, this was quite radical. It's still quite radical now. How how difficult was it to go and get people on board to actually believe that you were going to be a purpose led organisation? Investors, top of my list of people that don't typically like that type of conversation. You know, I think it has evolved dramatically over over the years. You know, as I say, initially it started off, and and there were a lot of you know, I think. There were a lot of people that that felt that you know this is this is bells and whistles um, and and not core to a health insurance or life insurance offering um, or banking um, for that matter. But uh, but over the years, you know, I think that we've there's been a, a a significant shift, and to the extent where even if you take things like our motor insurance business, Discovery Insure, where we we monitor and incentivize better driving behaviour. You know, the initially I think the response to that was, you know, this is good for young drivers, perhaps, where, where the risk is highest, but not in the mainstream. You know, I think the, the world has changed. You had Warren Buffett at the last, uh, at the last Berkshire uh, shareholder meeting discussing how they missed the, the sort of the, the trend towards uh, analytics and, uh, and, and, and measuring exactly how, uh, how, 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 uh, how clients drive. So, so I think the, you're quite correct. You know, 25 years ago, it was, it was, it was really, really seen. As, as extreme. But today, if you look at our partners globally, they are the biggest insurers in the world. They, they're adopting this technology as their frontline product. So if you take AIA across Asia, today it's the second biggest insurer globally. But the Vitality-led the vitality insurance offering is their core product offering across, uh, across all the Asian markets. So today it is seen as, I think, the global standard in terms of, of financial services products. And even at an investor level, I think ESG is becoming central to the investment case. And, and therefore, you know, businesses that, that are aligned with their customers, whether it's with regards to climate or sort of financial outcomes and their health and other aspects, I think are actually going to be better positioned. All right. So 
It's 2010. You're basing your decisions around, you know, I can imagine it in the executive team and at the board level, people are coming up with ideas. Maybe we should do this, that or the other. And the question's coming back. Well, if you can tell me how this is going to help people live longer and be healthier, then, you know, perhaps we'll give it a go. Someone comes in and says, let's go and do a bank. To me, it didn't feel necessarily, you know, uh, aligned with that underlying purpose. What was that decision process, you know, and when you finally decide to actually pull the pull the trigger? So, so what's interesting for us is I don't think we, we're particularly good at business, business plans. We, we product-led. And it's only once we have a product breakthrough that we believe the, the sort of the, the business has got legs. And so for us, it was, it was about starting with the product and, and getting to a product that we thought was differentiated sufficiently and really reflected the actuarial dynamics that we demand from our products in terms of, of sort of what we call a behavioral wedge. So can you create a, a sort of an experience wedge or in the case of life insurance, sort of flattening the mortality curve. So almost sort of bringing it down and flattening it so that people live longer. Or in the case of banking, sort of a, a credit default wedge whereby you bring down the risk of defaults. And only when we got to a product where, where we thought that this is gonna work and the, the numbers back it up, then the business plan followed. So that, that in essence, was, uh, was, was sort of a simplistic view of, uh, of the approach that, that we took. And then obviously we had to build it up sort of bottom up. You know, can we run it cost efficiently? Uh, can we build it? Do we have the systems, the talent, the people, and, uh, and everything then sort of followed from, from that point. Okay, so we've got these two examples, both trying to make people healthier, inverted commas, one on the uh, health side, so quite literally, and then on the other side in terms of financial health, all right? Both make perfect sense where you're saying on the one side, we're going to flatten the mortality curve so that you can open up better pricing for more and more people to go and join. Very obviously important in a South African context. Got exactly the same happening now on the banking side where you're hoping to flatten this, this credit or this uh, credit default curve. Don't you find that this is putting you in situations where it's difficult to make decisions? Because at the end of the day, banks and financial institutions make most money when their customers are performing the worst behaviors. Right? So when I walk out, I go and say, oh, look at this 500,000 Rand car, this 1 million Land Rover, whatever it may be. I can't possibly afford it, but Discovery, they'll give me a wonderful loan, which I can pay back over five years. Um, and you can make a very tidy risk adjusted sum, you know, on the back of that. So, in, you know, great business, great profit, but from a behavioral aspect, this is exactly surely what you're trying to, to stop me from doing. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So I think the, the traditional model did exactly that. Often, I think, you know, the financial institution finds itself in conflict with its customers. And, and therefore, you know, I think our model um, had to be different. In essence, if you think about how banks have traditionally managed that, or manage the, the economics of, uh, of, of the bank, there's an inherent cross-subsidy between those who are managing their money well and those who don't. You know, the, the sort of the bad debts are funded by the clients, inevitably, who, who, who aren't defaulting. And, and that's largely, you know, that's largely historic because, you know, the, the, the products that were offered were, were income or, or, in, or socioeconomically sort of segmented. Um, and what we found is that actually within different socioeconomic stratums or within different income levels, you get, you get a very, very wide range of customers. You get those customers who manage their money well, even though they may have lower incomes, and you get those customers who, who, who don't. And they, you know, they, that's almost agnostic of income. Now, obviously, there's a correlation, you know, at the very, very extremes, you know, billionaires um, are unlikely to default. But in the main, 
you know, if you sort of look at the, the that sort of 95% confidence interval, what you find is that is that the experience is less income dependent and more behavioral than, than you'd actually expect. And, and so you therefore find the low income earners who manage their money very, very well, they budget, they manage their money, and therefore they actually, they manage credit very, very well as well. And then they, they're astute and they're unlikely to default. At the same time, you could have, you could have a higher income earner who exactly, as you say, is enticed by sort of uh, bait and switch credit deals and uh, lives, off, lives off unhealthy credit and, and ultimately result, finds themselves in a, a, a spiral, uh, you know, sort of when there's any change in their, their income or, or, or the, the smallest change of their expenses. And so what we try to do is to remove those cross subsidies between the sort of the, the good clients and the bad clients. So our, our rating system within Vitality Money measures all of the different behaviors that they have across the financial system. So we take into account things like emergency savings, the types of insurances they've got in place, not just with discovery, but across the, the entire market, be more interested in the behavior than in, in loyalty. Because most of the sort of the, the programs that you find in the marketplace are, are loyalty programs. It's about sort of, will you buy more product from me? Our, our approach within Vitality is, is very different. You know, in the case of health, we say that, you know, we don't actually care where you exercise, as long as you're exercising. The same applies in Vitality Money. If you've got savings, we'd love that to, to be with us, but quite frankly, we're just interested in ensuring that you, that you have the savings in place. If you do, we can offer you the best interest rate in the market. And that's what we've been able to, to deliver. So for customers that, that actually are managing their money well, we're able to offer the best interest rates in the marketplace. We're able to offer, we think, the best rewards in the marketplace. So we're able to monetize that better behavior. And so, you know, you sort of your point around, are we aligned? We absolutely are. Because when we then look at the experience, we see that there are zero defaults. And, and that, is a, that is sort of a, an actual numerate um, example of we have had zero defaults at our highest vitality money statuses. The sort of short, it'll be a short history of Discovery Bank. The correlations are playing out even better than we expected. If you don't have bad debts in a bank, you're able to offer brilliant, brilliant benefits. And for those clients who aren't managing their money well, we're able to offer sort of almost market-related rates because we, you know, we're able to monitor and manage the, uh, the risk effectively as well. What evidence, um, and this is um, trying to pick up a little bit on some of the questions coming through. This one, Suman, you'll have to forgive me, it's vaguely related to what you asked, I think. I'll read this question. The levers you mentioned, information, awards, nudges to help customers take the right decision are all extrinsic. Have you built up any intrinsic motivation levers? So have you made, uh, you know, people find a way where just within themselves they can behave better? But I just want to uh, adapt it slightly. You're, you're new. You've only been around for, you know, what, three years, two years since you went live. Yeah. What type of nudges are you already applying and what results are you actually seeing in terms of better behaviors? Or is it too early to actually highlight any success stories? No, we are seeing early, early results. You know, we're seeing higher savings rates. Our, our deposits are growing exponentially across, uh, across the bank. Um, and that becomes sort of almost a virtual cycle in a sense that the more people What's are the saving. For that? So um, they're, they're, they're saving. What, what are you doing that's making them do that? We're offering them higher interest rates, knowing that the savings translates into lower defaults at a specific level. Um, and we are aligning it to very explicit sort of emergency savings goals. So we know that if you've got sort of an emergency savings uh, facility of about three months salary, you're pretty close to sort of taking that first step to, to, to being a very, very low credit risk. And no matter what the sort of the, the income level of the individual is. And so, so there are a whole host of those kinds of um, goals that we, that we set for our customers. 
uh, give them vitality points as they as they move towards them. And on the back of that, we're seeing the sort of the, the outcomes that we we sort of aspired to at the outset. So better savings rates, we certainly see that that improving over time. We see the sort of the settlement rates on our, our outstanding credit balances um, being very, very good on uh, our customer base. And that's once again, almost sort of agnostic of income level. So we're not seeing bad credit start to start to roll within within our customer base. Uh, and and you know those those are all improving almost sort of month on month. Now I think there's there's a bit of a, an environmental effect there as well because you know when we started it was almost just before the the start of COVID. So as we start to to see a loosening of lockdown restrictions, um, we're starting to 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 I guess sort of gain more traction at the same time as a as a bank. So the two are, um, are aligned in that regard. But we we seeing month on month literally higher engagement rates in vitality money. People are learning more. They're doing a lot more of the, the sort of assessments and, and we're seeing the, the sort of the outcomes that we wanted. How far are you likely to take these you know, pieces? I'll give you two examples, two, two products just totally made up, but um, worthwhile investments. Investment A, I buy a house, but well within my means. You know, forget four times salary. Uh, I'm earning 100,000 and I, and I just basically buy a house, which is 300,000, right? So easy to go and back. So in, in another example, I, I want photovoltaic and uh, solar on the roof. It's got a seven year payback. It's going to be immensely cheaper in the long run than continuing to rely on ESCOM and your municipalities. Both examples, banks currently service those customers, but make significant money out of it. Would you be willing to see yourself stepping in and say, well, forget return on capital and return on risk weighted assets and, and what the uh, the standard accounting is, which costs us money. We think in the long term, these are good behaviors and therefore we're going to knock off, you know, 100 basis points in terms of the lending arrangements because these are good behaviors or is that too extreme? No, it's not too extreme at all. First of all, I think that the sort of the, the climate change is one of the, the biggest challenges that we face. There are alternatives to, to solving that. You know, there's, there's carbon exchanges um, that you can use to monetize that better behavior. And these are the things that we're looking at. And, and it's a great example because you know, if you're taking a narrow view that as a bank, you just you're looking for a return on capital um, within a specific genre, then then that tends to lead you to to fairly sort of binary outcomes, which are usually at the expense of the client, exactly as you say. But if you look a bit broader and you say, well, actually, that behavior that you've just described is potentially good for the bank because you've got a, a better resale value on that home. And if you can monetize, if you've got the expertise to monetize that better behavior, um, through things like carbon exchanges, and you can, yeah, this is something that we've looked at quite quite closely. Then you can actually translate that back into a, a lower interest rate um, for for the client or the sort of the, the higher borrowing capacity. So, so these are problems that we think you have to solve through shared value models because you know this is a these are collective issues that we that we're solving at a societal level. All right, you get it, Adrian gets it, your colleagues get it, and you've got enough track record now where I think your investors get it in terms of shared value, purpose-led, purpose customer-first. I can throw all the uh, textbook acronyms out there. Let's stop there, shall we? But operationally, how, did, how difficult was it? This is a question from uh, Teron. How difficult was it to actually go and set this up? Because I'm just going to put some obstacles in your way. Where do you find the staff with this open-mindedness? Surely not within the banking community. How do you, uh, you know, bring them on board for a vision like this when it's so counterintuitive to what most people in this area have experienced before? They all want it, but they've never really experienced it in most organizations. That must have been in incredibly difficult. So I think, uh, first of all, I think that the people in banking um, as an industry 
um, are exceptional in general. You know, I think as an industry, banks have attracted really good talent. So I think that the talent pool was, uh, was, was always there to begin with. The other thing is that in our experience is that a good person or an excellent person that, that, that is inspired by a, a purpose that's bigger than themselves is even more effective. And that is what we found is that the people that have joined the bank have been, and most of them have come from across the industry, uh, have been exceptional in terms of their capability. But I think at the same time, you know, they are, they're inspired by a different purpose that is, that is bigger than, than just, you know, the absolute bottom line. And if you can achieve both, then, then I think you, you've got a really winning combination. So hopefully that's, that's what we've been able to do. I mean, if you think about a digital bank, it really is, it's virtual. All that we, we create is a function of the people in the bank. Um, and, uh, and therefore, having, having really, really exceptional people um, is critical, but it's also multiplicative. You know, you've got a very small group of people that manage the product, the finances, the risk for a very large customer base. And so that we can scale, that's a brilliant thing from an efficiency perspective. You're not constrained by the number of branches and branch hours and things like that. Um, but at the same time, it means that you have to have the best people literally in every single position. And I think that's that's what we've tried to do. You mentioned branches. Uh, can you ever imagine setting up branches? And if not, or either way, do you think you make a significant cost saving by not running branches? And, and how do you pass that on to the customers? I think, I think it's an absolutely massive cost saving. We couldn't have set up a bank today if branches were a requirement. And uh, it's a structural impediment to, to new entrants. And I think that's probably why you haven't seen really disruptive plays in, uh, in, in banking for, for, for a number of years. But I, I can't ever see us having more than the one single branch that we've got at our head office. That's more for just to say we have one. It's, uh, it's been closed since the beginning of, of COVID. So we, will, we won't have branches. Our branches are in the, the palm of our clients' hands. They're in their, their mobile and they're, they're with them 24 hours a day. So there's no need for a branch. We've never, you know, we've had, I think, the luxury of never needing to design a process that started in a branch. You know, we've reimagined every single customer journey and there was never an option or a constraint of needing sort of physical presence as one of the requirements. So for us, you know, we've solved every single problem has been solved through, through technology and sort of a branchless solution um, without the need for, for, for that, that physicality on the ground. What it allows us to do is to offer the entire bank suite of services 24-7, 365. You know, while we may be digital, we still have full, fully functional call centers. We found ways to actually innovate in the service space. So, for example, we've got a technology called Live Assist, whereby our call center agents can see exactly what our customers, uh, with their consent, can see on their mobile app in real time. And they can actually show them on the, on the screen of their, their cell phone of their mobile, exactly where to push on the app if they're having trouble with, uh, with a specific function. So they can actually guide them through the journey. So we've solved a lot of the problems that, that customers have. So for example, navigating a mobile app in a very innovative way that's available 24 hours a day for them. Um, you can open an account without any paper in minutes at any time of day or night. And we find that, that, that probably 50%, close to 50% of our accounts are opened after traditional bank hours. You know, so the, the reality is that I think our clients are being given a, a much better service as a result. And so branches would only constrain it. They never have to travel. They don't have to worry about the, the, the time that they're transacting. 
and the capability that we're able to deliver because the security is so much stronger is is much broader than you could ever um, deliver in a branch and as you say it is significantly cheaper it's it's for us uh, a no-brainer uh, there was a question about mistakes i can't find who asked it sadly it's just at the back of my mind but i'll give you the um classic example the uh google person that uh, took down google for six or seven minutes wherein any other organization would have been fired but at google ends up getting promoted and eventually actually gets into a senior position and, and becomes a multi-millionaire because in their perspective the intent was in the right place and therefore when sergey and larry and the rest of the gang are trying to find out what's going on it's like oh this is fascinating you were trying to make search more effective or whatever it was um that actually it was a lady that um went and did if anyone knows the name of her do uh, post it back i always forget have you made mistakes already in the journey that you'd be willing to share and what did you learn from them and how are you encouraging people to keep making mistakes look we make mistakes all the time i mean i think that we wouldn't be there wouldn't be progress without mistakes and you know for us the first mistakes we made was we we had a discovery miles currency in our original discovery card and and our customers our customers used them extensively but we thought that you know cashbacks would be the future and that if we could give better cashbacks then ultimately it may be it may you know it's a better proposition we we actually killed our discovery miles product when we launched the discovery bank it was the worst thing we ever could have done you know, it turned out that our customers loved miles. They loved the fact that they could store them, that they were they were being used for luxurious purchases. Cashbacks just got lost in their bank account. They didn't feel like they they didn't feel like they uh, they they were actually being rewarded for better behavior in a way that was different and more more tangible. And you know, quite quickly we we realized that you know we needed to bring back the miles, but do it in a way that actually was more powerful. And and today miles is is almost sort of the definitive e-currency or stablecoin in the group that monetizes uh, better better behavior across everything. So now, if you if you exercising, you earn discovery miles. It monetizes in real time, literally the exercise that you're doing. The same if you're driving, it monetizes better driving behavior. And if you if you're managing your money well, we we do exactly exactly the same thing. So 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 it was a fundamental error in judgment upfront and on the back of a lot of research. And and I'm lucky that the that the person who who made that call um, wasn't fired uh, up front. Otherwise, I wouldn't be sitting here today. So so you know there is a there's a there's a tolerance. I think we hopefully learn from we learn from our mistakes and we learn fast and we prepared to admit them and go back to the drawing board quickly and and you know come back with something that's better. That's the cycle of innovation. To to be quite honest. Thanks for one of the comments. I think it was Cheryl uh, Sandberg, the Manette. Thank you for this one. Where do you draw the line between controlling and guiding your client? Actually, to be fair, I wanted to ask this as well. I want you to intrude in my life because I need it. I'm rubbish at managing my own finances. I could really benefit, but I don't want to when we've got papaya, you know, and, and I might get offended by what you're doing. How do you manage that? The data issue is, is complex. Um, and I think there, there are a few aspects to the question that's been asked. You know, our clients share their data with us with consent and for positive incentives. We don't use the data against our, our customers. Um, so, so hopefully they, you know, they, 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 they're sharing the data with us knowingly and, uh, and, and willingly. So, so from that perspective, there, there, should be no, there should be no sort of papaya issues at all. The, the, the bigger issue, I think, is the one, is the one that you've, you've raised where, you know, where do, you, where do you really draw the line between telling somebody that they have to do something versus encouraging, nudging, and incentivizing? 
And I'd like to think that, you know, when you focused on positive incentives, that the product itself, um, even without the, the sort of behavioral elements, needs to be competitive and work. And that's the starting point of, of how we think about the products. If you then get the right behaviors coming through, and, we, you know, we start off with, with knowledge. So, for example, in the case of Vitality Money, it's about sort of showing people where they have gaps um, in terms of their financial management. So their savings are too low. They might not have insurance in a specific area. So really sort of guarding them in terms of just firstly identifying the gaps that are, are leading to sort of substandard or, 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 or worse outcomes than you, you could have. In the case of health, it's exactly the same thing. We give somebody a vitality age, which is sort of a risk-adjusted age based on their health behaviors. Um, and it's easy to compare to, to your chronological age there. Then we give information in terms of how you can, or a pathway as to how you can close those gaps. And then we give incentives, make it tangible, whether they're micro incentives like a coffee during the week um, or at the end of the week for doing a specific amount of activity or for maintaining your savings um, while, you're spending, while you're spending in a healthy way. The, the micro rewards we find are, are powerful. And then we've got the long-term rewards, which, which sort of accrue a significant, significant financial value. And that often manifests in things like very large cashbacks in our in our life insurance business, where you can you know you can really gear up better mortality experience. But the same in the case of, of banking, the interest rates compound. You know you borrow at lower interest rates, you save at higher interest rates, and the value becomes very very tangible. So you know the mindset that we've adopted is provide information upfront, knowledge of exactly where the customer stands, then a pathway to improve, and then incentives. You know, we sort of are of the view that with that, the, the sort of that right combination, you don't have to you don't have to to put hard and fast rules in place that uh, that people will engage, especially if you're able to gamify it in a in an interesting way. And and I think that's what technology allows us to do. So technology and gamification and behavioral analytics, behavioral economics, these are all calling out for AI and machine learning. How? intrinsic is that to what you're doing now and how do you see this changing over the next five to ten years so so i mean if you look at the data set that we sit on it it's globally unique we haven't seen another organization um, that has the richness of uh, of data across all aspects of, of an individual's risk sort of spectrum uh, than, than we have here at discovery you know we've got over 20 years worth of health clinical outcomes data inputs and outputs checked at an individual level we then have we then have sort of geolocation and spend data that you can layer on top of that, uh, and then we've got lifestyle related data. So we know when people exercise, how frequently, intensely, the foods they're eating, um, whether they smoke. So all of those all of those aspects start to sort of come together, and and we're able to 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 use that that information to to feed back to them. You know what is the next best action for their individual circumstances, and as you say, you know you you can't do that. You can't do that on the back of a cigarette box. Today, AI is really powering all of that, that sort of individual personalization. So we can rate credit risk at an individual level um, more accurately. You can aggregate data across multiple data sources, bring in you know, property ownership information in milliseconds, full investment portfolios, um, savings across multiple banks. All of these, all of these things were not, were not available before. Um, matching that then with the individual's behavior, you're able to then really personalize the, the information, the nudges, the prompts um, directly to, to, to the individual and the rewards. You know, there's a, there's a bigger return, for example, if a diabetic 
um, manages their diet uh, than somebody who's in in sort of triathlete um, shape. So you know you're able to actually to to adjust the sort of the the wedge or the shared value um, accordingly, and uh, and that creates a much more sustainable model um, from an actuarial perspective as well. All right, but you you still need the um, you need the technology and you need the people. You need the data yeah. scientists. So if we think forward, you know, five years or perhaps even even shorter. Here I am, I go to the groceries. I need you to see what I buy in the grocery shop. I need you to see what I'm actually purchasing, not just a transaction which is covering you know, the whole bill. I then need you to go and extract that data and compare it to your historical data. I need you to go and you know, run it in a, in a format where, I don't know, GP3 or GP4, so Elon Musk and his gang and Microsoft can come along and they can take that data set and then just turn it into magic, not just yeah. in terms of informing me more directly, but then, passing it on for marketeers and advertisers to try to help me on that particular journey. I can I can just imagine this this world with devices and headsets. I saw that, for example, we've got Facebook uh, putting their camera out on um, on Ray-Bans earlier, and I'm sure we're going to have Oculus Rift and virtual reality glasses in the next couple of years. So so data everywhere, data on the cloud, hyper data, whatever you want to go and call it. How are you bringing the people and the technology into you know, your organization so that you can actually keep up with this? Because these trends are exponential. Uh, look, as you say, it, it is a combination of both. Technology, having, having the, the architecture, systems, the data lakes and organization uh, that makes the analytics possible. But then you need the, the people to, to, really, to really give life to that. Um, I mean, the, the, the sort of the, the picture that you painted, at least the first half, is alive today and it's it's real you know we we get line item data on grocery baskets for the majority of the transactions that our clients are doing you know if you think about healthy food we are providing cashbacks of up to 75 percent when people eat healthily um in in our world and so they're giving us that data at a line item level at an sku level we uh, we've categorized every single every single item in the stores of our partners Woolworths and pick and pay so we're getting that data today. We see the changes. We see, you know, the nudges that affect the the actual basket composition, and able to map that back to long-term health outcomes. So we're able to see, you know, if uh, if somebody who's who's engaged in our weight management program, for example, if their basket improves um, in terms of the composition from a diet perspective, and then the, how that translates into better health outcomes, and then continuously sort of adjust that and rework it, iterate to, to get the, the sort of the incentives and the, the, the nudges just right. So we, we don't sell the data. That's where, that's the, up to the point where I was saying um, your sort of your, your picture is perfect. We don't sell the data at all to third parties. Uh, we utilize it, you know, there's strict controls on, uh, on, on the actual use of data and, uh, and how, how it's translated back to, to, to our customers. But your point around talent is crucial. You know, today, data scientists, are in high demand globally. But what we have learned through COVID is that you can create centers of excellence and, and you can draw on talent across the world. So more and more across the group, we're collaborating um, across our various markets and building real sort of data centers of excellence, drawing on talent across multiple markets. Uh, and you know, I think we've got really good talent here in South Africa, uh, but we've also got, we've got great talent pools in the US, in, uh, in the UK that, uh, that we're drawing on drawing on now and and building building sort of a, a really sort of strong uh, data expertise across uh, across the group 
Are you hoping that in time you'll be able to uh, patent another question that came up or uh, white label the discovery behavioral banking product in the same way that you did so successfully with Vitality? Yeah, uh, so I think the as the as the experience emerges, absolutely, the systems that we employ are transportable in terms of our Vitality One platform to be able to to offer to to two partners. That that's years down the line though. Today we are we are very much focused in South Africa on growing the bank and and really sort of building up that that credibility. In the way that you operate, I'm going to uh, put some barriers down. I think you've got about, was it 400 people in Discovery Bank at the moment? That's already quite a sizable uh, number. And if I think about not just banking, but any organization, there's lots of obstacles to keeping this innovative behavior. It was interesting you said earlier that uh, you're not so great at business plans. I, I thought, oh, awesome. Business plans, the death of an organization. I think it should be rephrased at nowadays. So you've got this innovative behavior. You've got a culture where you can talk to pretty much anyone in discovery and they'll say you're very accessible. Adrian's very accessible. If you've got a good idea, you can go in and have a chat with someone and it might be backed, especially if you can frame it into the underlying purpose. How are you trying to create, cultivate that behavior in your banking environment? On multiple sort of levels. We have, we've got formal programs where we actually, we provide incentives, big sort of financial incentives, but even more than that, you know, people can become heroes in the organization if they sort of formulate a, a great innovation. Um, and we give them the we give them the platform in which to to do that and we encourage them and uh, and provide support if they require it in terms of resources to build their to actually build their ideas. So we've got formal formal structures that uh, and programs and cycles and, and that applies across the whole the whole business. Uh, discovery but within the bank within the bank as well then we've got then we've got sort of daily um daily kind of uh, processes where we would uh, encourage our staff if they see something that they think can be improved small processes small product changes we've got a Hilton Kellner email that that I personally manage they can send it to me and I'll make sure that I'll either respond directly or get a response to them on either yes we can do it no, we thought about it and it doesn't doesn't make sense um, or it's a good idea, but we just don't have the, the, the resources available to, to do that at the moment. And and it will go onto it'll go into a list to to get prioritized. And and so, you know, we make sure that that people uh, that there's no bureaucracy in that process, that they can ensure that, you know, the, the sort of that feedback loop is quick and, and very simple. Then we have our, our sort of formal product development cycle where for the last 25 years, we meet every single week. It's one of the, the sort of the meetings that, that is sort of completely concretized into, into the schedule. And whether we've got a new idea or not, we have a, we have a weekly R&D meeting. Um, it lasts for probably about three hours at a time. I've, I've done this meeting 50 weeks of the year for 25 years. And it's a, it's sort of, um, it's a cycle, an iterative cycle of just continuously refining and improving the ideas that we see across the across the organization um, some of them massive strategies some of them really small um, UX journeys that we that we just need to get that we just need to get uh, better and get right and and that sort of combination of encouraging our frontline people to really innovate get making sure that feedback from our clients and and people across the organization um, is swift and can, be, and can result in innovation, which is which may be small, it may be big, but but we see innovation not just being product, service, and operational innovations are often often just as just as important. 
and then a, a formal R&D cycle, which doesn't end at a at sort of a, a launch, but the launch date itself is fixed. So we start the year knowing that we've got a launch, we're going to be standing on a stage delivering the message to intermediaries, um, investor community, and, and all of the sort of key stakeholders in the organization. And we have to, you know, we have to work towards that. And, and it's that sort of that urgency that it creates across the business that really does does push the sort of this continuous innovation cycle. So the, the launch date one's interesting. I mean, that's out of the Apple playbook and straight out of who else? Salesforce's playbook. You know, every year we're doing this big launch, we're inviting loads of people, you know, and if you've got a project that you're on, if you've got an idea and you're running and you're committing to it, this is the date. How effective has that been as just one example of the many things you do to actually inspire people to be innovative, but actually to deliver, you know, and take decisions? And, and what's the downside of it? Are you also seeing that some of the products that get released perhaps aren't of a suitable quality that you'd like because you've got that specific date? The discipline of ensuring that every product meets a threshold of quality um, and innovation is crucial. We are, I think, ruthless in a, in a good way. Um, at throwing out ideas. And you have to have a really thick skin in our sort of product development meeting not to take things personally um, because nine out of 10 projects, products don't see launch date. You know, we'll iterate and iterate and try, um, but if it doesn't make the, the grade, then, and often it's just a, it's a guttural sense where you see something, you say, that's a brilliant product. You know, I never thought of that. I never thought I needed it, but when I saw it, I realized that is brilliant. Um, those are the those are the best ones, and so you know. Hopefully, we've got we've got a discipline around around a threshold of of quality, um, and we've had launches where business units aren't present. You know, the they didn't make the grade, and it's a it's it's terrible for those in that space. Uh, but I think the you know that that ensures an adherence to to a level of innovation that's also inspiring and motivational at uh, at the same time. So so we do try to 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 adhere to that. I mean, you say it's out of the Apple playbook. Maybe it was completely fortuitous, but our background was in the medical scheme environment where rates change and benefits change on the 1st of January every year. So it sort of was, it was, it was born out of a, a natural calendar year cycle whereby we had to have our benefit changes ready mm. in sort of mid to end September every year. And so that evolved to a natural cycle you know, that forced us to set, and we applied the same thinking then and same mindset in every business um, that we started after that. So, so we've just been doing it for 25 years, not out of any sort of conscious so Apple, kind of so strategy. Apple copied you on that one, man. I'm not going to say that either, but I think the, the, the fact that they're doing it is, uh, is it probably speaks sort of uh, uh, volumes for the strategy itself. But, uh, and, and for us, it, it really does work. And you say, you know, the, what does it do for the staff and the, the, the people that are working on the projects? Uh, hopefully it inspires them. And, and we, we are, you know, we, we, we are never done until you're on the stage. That's sort of the mindset as well, is that the only time the product is finished or the launch is finished is when you start the presentation. You know, we can make changes literally up until the last minute. And, and uh, you know, the, you use Apple as the example. I can tell you, we've worked very closely with them globally on some of the projects that, that we do. And our experience with them is they're exactly the same. Massive organization, huge, the biggest in the world. Um, but their launches, we've seen, we've seen changes literally up until sort of the week before. And the ability to do that at scale is, was inspiring for us and sort of said, you know, 
however agile we think we are, you can always do better. And so that sort of those last hundred yards is something that, that we, we, we push just as hard as we do right at the outset of the, the project. Again, early days, I'm assuming not everything is working quite like you want. What, what are the areas that are you know, most frustrating for you that you want to get fixed because you know, the clients aren't necessarily 100% happy with that part of their journey with you guys? There's been a lot of building that's been done. And you know, there have been, been some things that were fundamental. When we launched the bank, it was mobile only. And I think that, that was the, that's the right decision, and certainly in the long term. That's the primary channel, but we didn't have a website. And feedback from our clients was, you know, you, you, you're a digital bank, but you don't have a website. And, you know, the, the mobile screen is only so big. So, so it was a bit of a constraint. We, we've, you know, we've, we had to build a fully secure, and there were good reasons why, why, we, didn't, why we didn't start with a website. We were mobile only first. And there, there are many, I guess, neobanks and great examples globally that they've stuck to that. But what we found is that our clients weren't ready for, for mobile only. We, we built a, a website, which maybe, you know, for a period felt like we were duplicating the, the sort of technology that had already been built. Today, we see great engagement levels in, in our website and people are doing things that, that they just weren't doing in the mobile. So you, you learn you learn as you go. And I think for us, it's sort of an example of not having the full suite or full capability right at the outset. And there are a lot of things that we'd like to offer our customers that, that you know, just to, are going to take a bit of time to build. So we'd love to get to home loans. We'd love to get to, to vehicle finance, as you said. And, you know, that would enable our customers to completely centralize all of their, all of their banking. Um, but, you know, we have to be a bit patient as well in, uh, in some, of those, some of those areas. What about existing uh, processes and, and customer journeys? Those are great. Those are new things. I'm loving the app, but the website's, you know, running. I was wondering, what about the call center, for example? There's... You know, is there disjoint between people that are talking to the insure side and the, and the banking side? I I'd so, imagine that there are, you know, um, what would you call them, pain points for customers as they're going through, where it's not quite as perfect as they'd want, and and you're trying to fix them fast. Yeah. So I think the I think the the, the main one there is in areas that involve Vitality and the bank. You know, Vitality is the the health behavioural platform, and Vitality Money builds on that. So in many instances. The, uh, the, the rewards that our customers get are additive. So for example, you can get a 25% discount on your healthy food if you're a Vitality Health member. But if you're a bank client, that goes from 25 up to 75%. So the benefit itself is brilliant, but then trying to, to sort of navigate that system where part of the discount comes from one pocket, the other, the other part comes from another, can be difficult for customers to navigate. So we've had to do a lot of work around the journeys, training, as you say, in the, in the call centers. If something doesn't work perfectly, then you know, the, the product can be complex. And so we're using technology more and more to solve those kinds of problems. And, and as an organization, we're not scared, to, you know, not scared to, to break down walls between different divisions. And in fact, many, in many instances, that's been our success, is sort of actually integrating a lot of the operational areas. But those kinds of things um, are true pain points when you sort of Adding one plus one to try and get five, the the sort of that process is is often is often very very complex. I guess we're coming into probably the last question, but the um, it's a it's a combination of a couple that have come in. What's the future of Discovery Bank, you know, look like, particularly in terms of the demographics that you're, you know, you're going for, and obviously the geographies that you're going for. My 
My assessment at the moment is obviously you've got a very willing customer base who are already used to discovery because they're existing clients for the rest of the business. There's a nice kind of income level that perhaps many of the people are earning because you've got you know monthly fees that are coming through. But what's the plan going through into the, the future? Is it, well, I'll stop there. What is your plan going into the future? You'll have to come to our launch next week. But, but, okay. but yeah, when is the launch? And is, and is it possible for people dialing in to listen in? The, the launch to our sort of internal intermediary uh, group is, uh, is, is in fact next week, the 30th, and we'll be communicating it to our clients shortly thereafter. So they'll probably see, they'll probably see it towards the end of next week, the sort of the, the, next, the next innovations start to, uh, start to, start to come out. Um, but I think what they'll see are, are some brilliant digital tools, data-driven tools, as we've been discussing now, that allow, allow really, really deep um, financial um, analysis around individual finances that, that were never possible um, in, in the past. As you say, sort of AI-driven insights, ability to categorize, capture data um, is, is truly phenomenal. And we're taking almost the, the capability that corporates or corporate treasury functions and corporate finance type functions um, have had and using the, almost like the, that level of software and translating it right down to an individual for their own personal account. And that, that's, you know, that just talks to everything we've been, we've been speaking about from a technology perspective. I think a lot more um, digital functionality in, in, in terms of managing your assets across different asset classes, currencies, um, Forex for us, and the ability to service our, our clients globally um, is, is, a, is a big area of, uh, of innovation that, uh, that, that you'll see uh, coming through. So, so we are really looking at, at building out the, the sort of the, the retail banking capability first and foremost. And then uh, from that point on, uh, then you'll see us moving into, into other segments. But from a retail perspective, we're not constrained by income at all. You know, our cheapest account um, or entry level account is 10 Rand a month in terms of the fees that we, that we charge. You know, we're seeing that about 30% of our client base, new client base on a daily basis comes from outside the discovery ecosystem. So we're attracting a lot of existing discovery clients, but new clients to the, the ecosystem as well. And we see the bank as the front end to the whole discovery composite in South Africa going forward. That is the, the sort of the, the vision, is that the bank will form the platform for the entire discovery South Africa composite. It'll provide the entry point. Um, it's secure. It's got payment rails, which are completely unique and a digital sort of capability that we don't believe is matched across the group and is competitive globally. So that's sort of where we're heading. And you'll see, I think, a lot of it next week. If you enjoyed this episode on behavioral banking, then do sign up to Inside Track with Colin Owls, where you'll find more interviews with business leaders from around the world. And if you want to join any of the live discussions, then please check out the events page on my website, colinisles.com. Thanks again to Huawei for sponsoring this series on the future of finance. And until next time, please stay safe. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.